Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine. And of course, today is no exception. I am talking to a really good friend of mine, Dr. Betsy Redman, about metabolomics. Let me give you her background, and then we're going to jump right in. Dr. Redman is a private practice nutritionist and senior education specialist with Diagnostic Solutions Laboratory. She uses a system by, systems biology approach in diagnosing and treating nutritional issues. Uh, she's conventionally trained with a master's degree in clinical nutrition from Emory. She also has a doctorate in nutrition from the University of Georgia. Uh, Betsy has over 15 years experience in functional research laboratory. Actually, that's how she and I know each other. We worked together for years. Um, Betsy tries to provide translational application by relating known and current research with clinical application. She believes that clinical, clinical application should go beyond what is assumed and include current knowledge to better optimize health. Before working in functional medicine, Dr. Redmond worked in a university research and public health program. Uh, you can find her on social media at Nutrition Provisions or uh, with at Diagnostic Solutions. Welcome to New Frontiers, Betsy. Thank you. It's great to have you here, and I'm actually really excited that we're talking about metabolomics, and what a better person to talk about it with. I, I, I can't imagine. I'm, I'm just... I'm just, I'm glad that you're turning your prodigious brain in this direction and you're going to tease it out. And the reason that I'm glad about it is because, of course, you and I worked at Metametrics. Um, Metametrics is no longer, but I think it was the first lab to offer um, clinicians a broad organic acid panel. And that was like the precursor to metabolomics. And so in, our, in the education department, you and I were always digging into the science around organics and what do they mean and how do we use them? And then, you know, leap forward into the omics revolution. Now we've got these amazing high throughput instruments where, you know, we're, we go from 40 analytes that we were looking at back in metametrics and we still use those today. And it, but to, you know, having the capacity to look at more analytes and, you know, it's, it's, it's just, there's an explosion of science that has occurred and, you know, I keep one eye towards it, um, but I'm not steeped in it in the way that you are now. And so it's just great to, great to be able to pick your brain on it. So, so let's just start with defining metabolomics and then, you know, specifically applied metabolomics. Well, I think it, it's really, it's hard to get one definition. There are a lot of them. And, and I would say that, you know, when you were mentioning that uh, Metametrics did that years ago, that was like 30 years ago that came out. <laughs> That's amazing. So, yeah. There's, you know, and now there's metabolomics and they seem to be kind of going parallel and they need to come together more. Um, but I, I guess, you know, when I think of metabolomics, I think it's the study of metabolites and how your unique fingerprint so it identifies your cellular processes, your functional readout of your physiologic state. And, and it's, you, know, you can characterize it for cells, organs, tissues, and biofluids. I, I tend to really focus on urine mm -hmm. because it's, it's so easy to get urine. Yeah. So it makes it a little more, because eventually I'd like to see it where you do a baseline and then you, know, you do kind of a more regular follow-up with it. But I think what it can help with it, it, you know, looking at all the metabolomics, you can kind of figure out what is related to different pathways, um, what's normal, but then for each individual, what's normal. 
I guess the, you know, the extraordinary thing about it is, um, you know, you can get insight into pathological shifts or potentially pathological shifts way before the disease state actually develops. And I think probably with these broader metabolomic tools versus, you know, what we were doing back in the lab, they're, you know, they're more, they're all the more sensitive. And so then, you know, we're, we're already talking about this, but so how, how, how do we, how do we take this and make this into something um, that's clinician friendly? Right. Well, I think some of it, because there is the big data sets that they put out there and really it's going to take a lot of, um, you know, computing to get, but there's a lot of individual markers that just haven't really been put out there yet that have good research behind them. So we, I think part of it is we just have to kind of do to get it out there. And that's why functional medicine has really been pretty successful because they made these assumptions, they had research, they put it out there and started applying it clinically. Yeah, that's right. We have a lot of that. I know when we, when I first started at Metametrics and you were, you were already there um, in your office and I, uh, I <laughs> down, the hall. <laughs> down the hall, yelling out the door. <laughs> um, but, you know, looking at it and wondering, um, how is this true? I came from a research institution and I have not heard of all this stuff. Right. And so that's kind of what got me into really researching it. Yeah. I mean, it's really, it's pretty extraordinary. I know. I remember that. You were so, you know, you're such a research hound. You're always so good with the data and, you know, bringing us more and more and sort of challenging and expanding how we were thinking. Um, but it is, it's pretty extraordinary that, you know, the, the, the founders of our field had the presence of mind to think about, say, the old, you know, inborn error of metabolism research, which is pretty much where organic acids came from and think, you know, can we use these metabolites in healthy people and look for more subtle perturbations? And that's, I think that's really how the, how the party started in this arena. It was a, it was really, it was a stroke of, of brilliance. And now we've got the potential for looking at much, much more. In, so in your read on the literature, and we're actually folks going to move through a bunch of the analytes that Betsy is thinking about today, um, and those citations will be on the show notes. So she's sent me um, a, 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 just a, quite a, a variety of references, and so anything she mentions today will, will pop on the show notes, and the things that she sent me prior to her interview will also pop on the show notes. So if you're, if you're interested in doing a drill down here and thinking about how you can use these in practice, um, you know, just head over to the show notes. So talk, actually, you know, I want to know what conditions it's most helpful for, but talk to me a little bit about Ian Miller's work, because I know you've been impressed with him. He's out of University of Wisconsin, and he's looking at using urine um, metabolomic data for real-time health monitoring. And actually, we can just kind of flow that into um, important conditions. Yeah, I mean, I think that that really stood out to me. It's it's it's, it's two nineteen, so it's it's pretty current. But um, you know, he was saying that there are really two avenues now for continuous monitoring, like consumer grade wearables and clinic based precision medicine. And what um, he did was he had two people in the study, and they took all like everything about them, everything they ate, all their exercise, 
um, collected all their urine for 10 days. And um, that must have just been really hard. <laughs> I re do you remember the days when we were working on new tests in the lab and sort of the whole hallway would be full of urine <laughs> collection? <laughs> Oh my goodness. Life yeah, I mean, in the lab. Four hours is hard to get. I guess you just have to wrap your head around, okay, this is 10 straight days I'm doing this. Um, so, but he got a lot of stuff. He got a lot of detailed review, like, oh, they had coffee. One had coffee in the morning and they'd see this change in markers. One had it twice a day and the alcohol they would drink or what they would eat. And it was, it's fascinating read, but it's not it's not practical. It's not really even necessary to do all that. Um, so I think it just really got me thinking that, you know, in this whole area that there need, you need to kind of find the markers that are going to be most clinically useful that are newer markers that maybe kind of help you look at the whole pathway. And instead of just picking out individual markers and, and thinking, you know, well, this marker's high or low, we need to do this look at it in the whole pathway, look at it in the cascade of tryptophan or methionine and those metabolites right? where they may cross through. Right, right. So more in depth, a little bit more granular. And your read on the current literature, what um, conditions are, you know, can we, are most, uh, lend themselves to this level of analysis, do you think? Well, I think the um, metabolic conditions, diabetes certainly has a lot of stuff going on. So um, they, uh, I think, you know, Zhang and 213 had, a, had stuff coming out looking at um, that their data suggested that ro robust metabolomics had a potential as a non-invasive strategy. And that was seven years ago. And I mm. feel like that, yeah, seven years ago, I was thinking, yeah, you're, it's not going to be an ideal. And I don't know if sometimes it just takes a long time because people want it to be diagnostic in that this is positive and you have this. You know, it's, it's, it's going to be metabolomics, applied metabolomics is really going to give you a more underlying idea of pathways and areas to be concerned about. And it's going to show you perturbations long before it kind of right. reminds me of thermograms like you can do a thermogram for for breast assessment and if something shows up it's not diagnostic it's not going to say you have breast cancer but there's a concern and we need to go there and yeah that, you know kind of metabolomics can do the same thing yeah and it can it sounds like it can kind of narrow in the the various pathways that are perturbed so um Talk to me about, so actually, would you, so you would say, I mean, it begs the question, perhaps, so perhaps one of the reasons these haven't been widely adopted is um, not because biased. we have, we have A1C, we have fasting blood sugar, like we've got this workhorse, you know, selection of compounds that we've been analyzing forever, and I think people are kind of in the habit of doing it. But what you're saying is that if we were to consider metabolomics, we might see, we'll see the imbalance before we see these imbalanced. We'll just see the subtle transition towards, um, you know, dis-ease. Yeah. And I think that when you think of that whole thing about, you know, if you want to get, if you want to transform modern medicine, which I do, um, 
that you need to make it as you know, predictive, preventative, personalized, participatory. And to have somebody come in with a normal uh, visit, they'll come into a clinician maybe once a year, right. younger, and they come at once every five years, they get checked to see, you know, like, how's your blood pressure? It's not high. You know, how you don't have diabetes. Okay, bye. Um, but that's not really helpful if you have a family history or you want to know if something happening. So maybe you don't have diabetes or even pre-diabetes, but maybe you have pathways or markers that might be elevated that you could actually do something about early on. Yeah, that's so cool. And it, and it may be a little bit more refined than just, okay, low glycemic diet. I mean, this might actually provide a little more detail on how you're going to prescribe for somebody um, their particular intervention plan. You know, and again, just thinking back at the lab, um, even, you know, there were less sophisticated panels, but you know, we would see imbalance of certain nutrients or, you know, maybe we would start to begin to think about toxins with a given panel. So I'm sure we could still apply that and then some to these more sophisticated um, metabolomic investigations. Would you say that that's true? Yeah. And I, well, and I also think it, it helps people make changes because then they can see their changes. Yep. You, you don't have diabetes. Let's do a change and see if we can, yep. you know, move your A1C a little bit, even though I already told you it was normal. So if you can move back further, yep. you can kind of see. You know, I think it's exciting. Okay. So well, listen, let's talk about, let's talk about some of the markers that, that you've been um, interested in and, you know, any, any studies that have um, furthered your knowledge you know, again, folks are going to be interested. I'm sure that there are quite a few of our listeners who are using organic acids and would, you know, jump at the chance to, you know, look at metabolomics. Yeah, well, I think that there's a study that I that I liked. It was in, just looking here, it was Diabetes and Metabolism from 218. And it was called Identification of Urine Metabolites Associated with Five-Year Changes in Biomarkers of Glucose Homeostasis. And they had baseline assessment um, of you know, A1C, uh, fasting glucose, um, insulin resistance. And they also had um, some metabolomics markers. So they actually whittled it down to 17 markers they thought would make sense. Um, and they looked at them in baseline, and then they looked at it five years later. It's a Dutch study, so they just collect a lot of um, data and have that accessible for, for research. So it was the, the civil registration system in Copenhagen. Um, and it had, you know, like almost 4,000 people who were in the, in the wow. assessment. So it was quite a bit, but it has a really nice table in it and they broke it up into, you know, whole population and then a subpopulation who were healthier people and then by weight, but they found some markers were, were high across, you know, looking at all those A1C glucose and insulin resistance um, and one methylnicotinamide, which, you now I hadn't heard of that before I, I ran across some of these and started looking into it. Um, I mean, I might have heard of it, but there's a, you know, quite a bit of research on it. So they found that, they found betaine was really helpful, you know, of course, lactic acid. <laughs> um, so they found these guys were high. One methyl nicotinic acid, betaine, lactic mm -hmm. acid. 
Yeah, they they were high at um, at baseline. Okay, which, which kind of give you an idea. So in a pre 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 diabetic. Yeah, so five years yeah. earlier, so yeah. they weren't going to be died. You, your A one C wasn't going to be high till no. later. And blood time. sugar was fine. Every you know other mark our standard markers were within normal limits in these guys, but they you were seeing these other imbalances. Yeah. So over time, you'll you'll see them. Yeah. Start to rise up. Mm -hmm. Isn't that fascinating? So why, why betaine? Like, what, did you, would you have, did, did have you teased out why <laughs> these guys would be, why betaine would be high? Like why the methylation cycle would be, um, well, and there's other studies that also, you know, um, there's a urinary assessment. There's some good studies looking at betaine in relationship to diabetes. Um, once you get well once I get going it's like oh no now I can't stop I'm gonna have to go so there was a, a, another um, study that looked at specifically at assessment of urinary betaine as a marker of diabetes um, in cardiovascular patients but um, it was part of the Western Norway B vitamin intervention trial and they had about you know 2300 people and it huh. was so interesting if you, you know, what they found, they, they broke it up into three groups and they had people who had diabetes, mm -hmm. people who had no diabetes, but they had um, low glucose, you know, high glucose and no diabetes and low glucose. And they had a, at 99 was their cutoff of fasting glucose. Mm -hmm. so they had those three groups and they were looking at urinary um, betaine. And so when you, the ones with no diabetes, if you just look at the spread of urinary betaine, they tend to be, you know, anywhere from one to, you know, 35 is the, what the, the urinary excretion. But with the people with diabetes, the range was so much higher. It was like one to 200 plus. It just stopped because that yeah. was as high as their assessment. Um, mm -hmm. So people tended to have a much higher marker. Their, their baseline, their mean was, you know, probably 35 compared to like seven for the other group. So just as it was high, was kind of giving you an idea. And they found that more in people with diabetes. So if somebody comes in and you see this, you know, high urinary betaine, it can give you an idea. I mean, you know, it, yeah. it has a, a lot of things that go on. But then when they changed it and they also looked at other pathways, I mean, other markers of it, mm -hmm they compared it to A1C. So they did a, like they have a chart and they have urinary betaine and A1C. And there wasn't much of a correlation until they got to A1C around six and a half. So it was really 6.3 to 6.7. And once they did that, it was positively correlated, just kept going up together. So did betaine rise before A1C? Um, no, they really, it, it was, it kind of went straight across until it got to around six. So it was around 10. And then when A1C got to around six and a half, the betaine took off. Interesting. I wonder, and obviously they um, confirmed they hadn't just eaten a bunch of beets. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I'll have to, again. Yeah, I'm assuming they did that. And since they had such a big study group, you know, with almost 2,500 people, it might uh, negate the... the so what about, what about NMA and um, NNMT, like some, one of the, some of the other um, methylation markers and um, 
diabetes or prediabetes. Yeah, I like the the NMA marker because I thought that was so significant. I mean, because in the first study, it, it showed up um, as related to every you know in every group and, and people who were obese and not obese or the whole population of the healthy ones, it tended to be related to those to those markers to early um, or early metabolic changes. Yeah, and um, so. It just kind of, you know, again, it's like, it always bugs me when I haven't heard of something. Yeah. Like, I am interested in this stuff, and I haven't heard of it. So the 1-methylnicotinamide, um, it is the final breakdown product of, of tryptophan. So, you know, tryptophan goes down the whole kinurinin pathway. And, um, and certainly, like, with diabetes, that's going to get pulled. So inflammation is going to kind of push that TDO, IDO enzymes down the kinurinin pathway. So it's going to, it's going to go down, it, you know, makes niacin. But then the breakdown product of that is um, one methylnicotinamide or MNA. So it, it gets called by like a lot of these um, get called by a lot of different names. Um, every study has a different name, but so that, you know, they have found higher one methylnicotinamide in patients with diabetes, not just that study, some other ones. Um, but originally they thought that it was just the break clearance of excess niacin. Nobody really gave it much thought that that's what it was. The enzyme that takes it from nicotinamide to one methylnicotinamide is nicotinamide and methyltransferase or NMNT. Right. Um, and it was originally thought of as an inactive metabolite of, you know, it was that it was just there for clearance um, to get the, the, the niacin out. But then they started thinking, well, maybe it's related to more. Because when you look at it, it actually has to get methylated to get out. So you have to have, you know, you have the NNMT enzyme, the nicotinamide and SAM, it's methylated and then it becomes one methylnicotinamide. So there are some studies looking at it that um, it can it can deplete the body's methyl group pool. Interesting. Okay. Okay. So that's got yeah. So that's why you're probably starting to see um, some of those imbalances happen. You know, there's interesting research. So I, somebody who who I, I podcasted with. Um, David Sinclair, he's a big gerontology scientist at Harvard. I don't know if it'll be out by the time of this podcast, but um, he and I were, he, he's, he's looking at this pathway in aging, you know, and, and manipulating it. Like he's, as, as a regenerative um, influence. So he's big in, he's big into um, nicotinamide, um, riboside and other forms of, of nicotinic acid, but it's in his, he looks at in an animal model, but you know, I wouldn't be surprised, Betsy, as you tease through the science of these markers <laughs> that you're going to, you know, see some other areas to apply your, um, you know, your work. So not just really early diabetes, which obviously is helpful and is obviously going to promote aging, um, but you know, the corollary anti-aging and, you know, thinking about using some of those, um, nicotinic acid interventions that are that are pretty popular now 
Right. Or if you, you know, if you're going to get rid of the, if you're pulling out the uh, nicotinamide, you're going to be pulling out NAD and NAD is used for so many things. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But even dehydrogenate. So, you know, I don't think they've really looked into what does that mean? And and there are certainly, they've found it increased in, you know, cancer, cirrhosis, and other conditions. So it's when it's really high, but then they also have some studies where they look at and, um, you know, low levels are a concern. They're looking at, you know, they looked at whole blood NAD, NADP, for actual in in pellagra patients and controls and uh, and they okay. found that that didn't give that great it kind of gave an erroneously low estimate but when they looked at spot urine of one methyl nicotinamide those concentrations were a little bit more sensitive and specific in getting identifying people who actually had pellagra Oh, okay. So that's your, your classic niacin deficiency con- condition. So yeah. there's, so you'd be able to use this to not only assess excess as you know potential pathological um, diabetes or maybe accelerated aging, and you know also since you're gunking up the methylation works big time, of course detoxification and um, you know all sorts of other possibilities that that that, that will be imbalanced. They are my area of. In, interest right now a study that we've just finished is looking at dna methylation so imbalances in biochemical methylation are obviously going to impact you know dna methylation um and you know genetic expression and and in either deficiency or excess so so cool so you'll have so low reference limits will will indicate perhaps nutritional insufficiency and you know excess we need to be thinking about some of these other policy um um uh, issues. All right. No, now, they also, I've seen studies where they low levels, uh, they're thinking may participate some allergic reactions. In oh, interesting. Allergens. Huh. Yeah, I think that's, is yeah, that because, that. so is that because of histamine and methyltransferase, do you think, if methylation is gunked up, um, insuf- if there's insufficient um, methyltransferase activity because SAM is depleted, they're not able to uh, get rid of histamine? Is that yeah, I mean, mechanism? I, I, I would go with that. Okay. All right. <laughs> yeah. All right. I mean, so I think there's all these questions that they, that it, they're, they're finding associations and they're just really. Isn't starting. that exciting? I mean, exciting. well, because, well, well, one of the, so one of the things that's always been a conundrum for me is that, um, you know, it's certainly in functional medicine, it's sort of anecdotally, you know, recommended that we give people B vitamins in allergy season to help them metabolize histamine. Now, I've done this plenty of times in practice, but I don't really generally see any appreciable benefit. And probably a lot of people are sufficiently methylating, and these are people who are coming to work with me as a functional provider, so they're doing a lot of things right. But maybe if we have this um, if we have this metabolomic data sitting in front of us, we're going to see the people who will actually respond to a B-complex intervention in allergy season, right? We can stratify, and again, using the four Ps, that's very personalized. So instead of throwing a B vitamin at everyone, which, I, which I'm, I'm, I'm less inclined to do now that I've been in epigenetic data for a while, um, if we can stratify and you know really individualize, it's very—it's just the most satisfying medicine to, 
to, to practice. And I can, I can see that's where we have the potential of going with metabolomics data. So that's pretty exciting. Yeah, no, to I me. think it is. I'm so glad you're excited. When I talk to my <laughs> family, they're not as excited. Um, <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah. I think it just kind of, when it's high, it, it makes me think that that tryptophan and the, you know, methionine, that those yeah. pathways are just coming down and that's just moving too fast. Yeah, yeah, and that's right. getting all that. And, and, you know, when that, when that nicotinamide gets methylated, it's irreversible. So it's gone. So right. that methyl donor is gone. You've spent it. Yeah. Yeah. So they have, you know, they have studies where they've given supplementation of even just 1% in animal studies, so just like, you know, rodent pups. And that prevented their growth until they added some more methionine. And then that, then they started growing again. Um, and then with the, the adult rodents, you know, the high doses increased liver condition. Interesting. Until they gave some choline. So, yeah, so with, it's, with people, you're going to, you know, the more you know, the, the better you can uh, individualize it. You don't have to know everything. And you don't have to know exactly like this for that. Right, right. Well, a lot of people are intimidated because of either, you know, the test is full of acronyms or it's, they're all polysyllabic words, you know, and they're in the middle of biochemical pathways. People are either excited about that or just horribly intimidated. And so I think a good metabolomics assay is going to have to kind of pull the branch down. So it, it's, you know, I, having the data, I like having data at my fingertips so that I can look at it and kind of make, you know, do my own research and draw my own conclusions. But I definitely like being handheld through it because, you know what, this, this field is actually going like gangbusters, like all of the omics field, fields. The science is just bursting at the seams. And so we need you, you know, and other people who are really spending time in the science and, and translating it for us, the clinicians, you know, creating how we're going to um, use and interpret it. So I want to ask you about glutathione. I mean, we know the methylation cycle. Anybody who's practiced functional medicine for a while knows, you know, the methylation cycle um, interfaces with the transsulfuration cycle and, and ultimately that produces glutathione. Um, so do you see, if you're, looking, if, you're, if you're looking at some of these imbalances, do you see glutathione actually being affected? Yeah, well, and I think so, right. We've always been, you know, looking at specific markers um, with glutathione. I, you know, there's some good studies and, you know, pyroglutamate. And so when, you know, um, uh, alpha hydroxybutyrate. So when you look at those pathways, like I'm trying to look at, so if tryptophan comes down and methionine comes down and they kind of meet at methylation and then after that is, you know, going down to, um, to glutathione. So it just like, what are all those things related to it? Um, Let me just say folks for you wondering why Betsy keeps saying going down. She's probably, <laughs> she's got pathway charts in her head. <laughs> oh, that's true. It is. I'm Isn't going down funny? the pathway. I tend it's to like, think like, I guess going down. It's being yeah. metabolized. It's the catabolic pathway. And that's why she keeps saying it. So as it's catabolized. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. It is where my head is. It's so, so. funny. I know that. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's, so looking at those like markers that, you know, I would call standard in uh, functional medicine. Yeah. You know, thinking of those, but then adding newer markers that may give us 
a little bit better, you know, insight into that. So um, there's a, a good study and they actually, their whole thing, it's called um, integration of traditional metabolomics, um, metabolomic biomarkers identifies prognostic metabolites for predicting responsiveness to nutritional in interventions against oxidative stress. So what they did is they're looking at what baseline markers, so they did baseline markers and they looked at metabolomics mm -hmm. and they also looked at standard um, oxidative stress and inflammation markers. So they looked at, you know, glutathione, you know, the oxidized to reduce glutathione, MDA, IL-6. They looked at these markers in blood, except for the... Um, so MDA, that's lipid peroxides, folks. Yeah. Uh, yeah. IL-6, yeah. <laughs> um, so you're, you need to be around my family when I keep talking and they're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I don't know why. I that's so funny. Yeah, next time I'm in Atlanta, well, um, I'll, I'll translate for you. Right. All right. <laughs> um, so they looked at those at baseline and then they looked at some um, metabolomics markers and then they followed them also, you know, they gave them those and then they gave them an antioxidant. So they actually, hmm. in this study, were looking at Korean blackberries and in the first part of the study, they compared them with North American blackberries and Korean blackberries turned out way better. Oh, is that right? In their study. <laughs> So um, now I'm going to go to the store and see if I can even find, find some. Um, but what they found was that, and this article stu stood out to me because it's newer and they kind of did what some of those old studies do. So they found that the people who had adequate higher glycine and a compound called um, phenylacetylglycine, if they had those two compounds both as higher, they tend to, to respond more positively to the, um, to the treatment of, of the Korean blackberry that helped brought down, bring down their um, inflammation. So it specifically huh. did really well in bringing down the, um, the glutathione ratio. Huh, okay. So, so it improved, so, when, so these guys, these two compounds predicted response to intervention in dropping inflammation right and, and it, increasing glutathione mm -hmm. and it makes sense because if you have uh, enough glycine then you're going to probably do better you know so you can also make glutathione since it can be a limiting factor yeah glycine can be so, a limiting factor yeah. but we usually think about cysteine and N-acetylcysteine. So it's right. interesting that, you know, glycine is actually the amino acid we want to be thinking about. Well, I think it, it, all, it may also give a marker of where other markers are. That it, if somebody has super low glycine, that giving them all these antioxidants may not be as effective if you don't also address yeah. that area. Yeah, yeah. That's very interesting. Do you happen to know whether they had okay cysteine in this study? Like, it's just interesting. I just, I always think of glycine as being more plentiful and I think of cysteine as being the rate limiting amino acid in the glutathione tripeptide, but this would suggest no, at least not in some people. So that's Well, I mean, they were new to this and they wanted to say that, um, 
in the study, we, and that they have a sentence in there, which I found so odd, we only suggested that the subjects who had statistically higher mean value of background urinary glycine and phenylacetylglycine, PAG, levels may have good prognosis following nutritional intervention against oxidative stress. And it's a weird sense, like, we only suggested it. We're not standing by that. If you guys don't agree with it, they also should have called somebody in functional medicine right. and said, what do I do with this? And I would have said, pull back. You know, so people who have, you know, adequate glutathione support probably are going to do better. But, you know, when you're doing treatment. But I think being able to look at these markers together, mm-hmm. along with the, you know, the standard markers that functional medicine looks at, yep. gives you a, a fuller picture. So it does help. A more sophisticated, more nuanced, more personalized. Yeah, no, I get it. It's pretty exciting. I'm looking forward to the, you know, getting to know some of some new analytes. Um, I mean, I'm appreciative that that what we, you know, that what was created 30 years ago still is is still is still in use. I I just really appreciate it how how savvy the founders of this field were. But you know, it is also it's also time for clinicians to have something. Uh, you know, something a little bit more in depth um, yeah. in their toolkit. And I, I know, that, well, as I said, I think a lot of metabolomics research has gone on more conventionally or, or you know, more conventional researchers um, and, and uh, clinicians and then functional medicine's gone on, but it really, I think it's mm-hmm. time to yes. get together. Well, and one of the reasons why I appreciate you actually putting your brain here is that um, I think there's some overinterpretation on certain organic acids, you know, and what they mean and their utility, you know, and their utility. And um, I think I think that yeah, I've certainly heard that in my years practicing functional medicine, um, you know, really diagnosing conditions that um, can't be diagnosed with the current commonly used panels of organic acid. So I, um, yeah, I know you're always evidence informed and you're always reading the literature. So I, I just look forward to seeing what you dig up as you move forward. Um, well, I was going to say the marker, you know, going back to the, <laughs> the other study, that, that study looking at glycine and phenylacetyl, phenylacetylglycine, that phenylacetylglycine comes from glycine. So they do tend to trend together. So phenylacetylglycine is glycine and phenyl acetate together, mm-hmm. which phenyl acetate can come from phenylalanine. Right. Um, if it breaks down to phenylpyruvate. So if anything, if PAH enzyme is impaired, um, then, then those markers get higher. And so glycine jumps in there and grabs it. Um, it and it also can come from the environment, from diet or yeah, from gut. So it's interesting. Yeah, I wonder if it's neuroactive. Like phenylacetate can be neuroactive, and glycine is a neurotransmitter. Also, I don't know. When you look at um, phenylethylamine, yeah, from D-E-I. food, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So that gets metabolized into phenylacetate uh, by MOA. So to try to keep. Um, things from reaching the brain. So I don't know. Uh, so it doesn't cross the blood brain barrier. Okay. All right. Well, Cause but, if you can't do that, yeah, then you get those symptoms. So maybe it's not. But phenylketonuria, people can have high phenyl acetate. 
Yeah, and I, I'm yeah, now that you're saying that, I'm like, oh, I guess because glycine could conjugate with that. It's you know, kind of like when glycine conjugates with with butyrate and becomes hippurate. You know, look, it gives you yeah. like it, it gives you a story of oh, I need to go back. Where's that all that butyrate coming from? Right. So where's all that phenyl acetate coming from? Um. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so let's just talk about. I'm sure people are are, are saying yeah, 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 yeah. But you know. In a, in a well-designed panel, you'll be able to geek out and go into the science and understand the rationale. And you'll also just be able to use it in a busy practice, um, you know, with interpretation kind of done for you. I mean, yeah, I can, I can see that. And, and hopefully the evolution of artificial intelligence will <laughs> catch up. Um, all right, besides diabetes, what other conditions well, there's some good markers looking at uh, kidney disease. Um, oh, okay. Like liver, there's liver, liver type fatty acid binding pro protein. That you know, seemed to have a lot of uh, interesting research um, behind it. And it's, it's L-F-A-B-P because there's, there's other ones too. Okay. So, and would this be something, again, that would suggest early changes? Yeah, so it's it's looking at um, things that are taking place earlier. It's actually used in in, in Japan, okay. um, so it, it's it just gives you a little more idea of uh, what might be going on it, with with kidney function. I was looking for the actual thing that that Japan had on it, but so if if you look at it when um, yeah, you got it, but <laughs> albumin's going to bring in free fatty acids. Um, into the cytoplasm, um, the, the FABP will bind it and take it to the mitochondria. But if there's any type of ischemic reperfusion or changes, the, the free fatty acid to peroxides, yeah. FABP will just take it out. So it's going to protect against uh, oxidative stress. So it's really, a, you know, a better marker for monitoring early treatment of chronic kidney disease. Okay. And it's is in it? the kidneys? I mean, is it in, it's in, where, where is this mm -hmm. liver type fatty acid yeah. binding protein yeah. located? It's, yeah, it's funny. It's kidney it's, specific. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, they also have some other really interesting studies looking at it with um, exercise. And they looked at VO2 max and grip, grip strength, and that they found it was inversely associated with the urinary FABP levels in middle-aged and older adults, even huh. without chronic kidney disease. Oh my gosh, isn't that fascinating? So, I mean, if you, you might have slight, you know, problem, you know, things you don't even know that you have, but <laughs> it could be affecting your ability to exercise. Right. Which normally you just say, well, I'm a little older now. Um, but it, it kind of, um, it'll transfer all over. So it, it could be an early marker of some deterioration, some loss of organ reserve and in, in kidneys and beyond. God, that's fascinating. All right. So listen, we've been looking at various organic acids that um, are produced in the gut. So they give us an idea of of activity happening there. What are some of the newer ways that you're thinking about gut activity? What are the new gut metabolomic um, 
players that we want to think about or, or, or concepts that we want to be thinking about? Yeah, you know, when I was um, way back when, I was really into um, proteolytic fermentation. And there really just wasn't, a decade ago, there just wasn't that much information. But now a lot more is coming out. So that's something I think I would, I would really look at. I know when, when, when I'm looking at stuff, I want to know the balance. So of sacrolytic to, versus proteolytic. All right, right. We'll just, What's your sacrolytic proteolytic balance? Hey, baby. Hey, baby. What's, what's your balance like? Well, I think, you define, know, define them, though. Just, just define them. So sacrolytic is going to be carbohydrates. Um, and those are going to be the things they actually have a lot of information on. That's pretty well established, looking at short-chain fatty acids, butyrate, acetate, propionate. So looking at those things. Um, but the proteolytic markers are the, the protein breakdown. And there's really going to, there's been less of that. Um, there is new research coming out, and they're, they're looking at what all that means. And generally... It's always been like the old research was proteolytic fermentation. It's bad. But now, right. you know, maybe, maybe it's not as bad. Um, Interesting. So I think that they're just trying to figure out what's good, what's bad, you know, that they can, um, people can. So, really you could, so you could look at a handful of sacrolytic and proteolytic gut produced markers so bacterial action on carbohydrates or bacterial action on protein produces these um, organic acid, organic acids. This is and and a balance of the. So so we can look at a ratio to suggest you know health or dysbiosis. I guess. Yeah, and I think well, what I would what I look for first is I would look for the proteolytic markers first. Okay, so you won't. So you're not just going to look at a ratio between the two. You're going to actually look at the specific. Yeah, they, they there hasn't been developed a standard ratio, but that's a good idea. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but so you know, you'd want to look at the proteolytic. Are those kind of taking off? Yeah. So they really because they've been involved in more metabolic disease. You know, they they have more you know more likely to have negative stuff going on. But part of it is, you know, if they're going to be related, number one, to your dietary protein. How much protein are you actually getting in your diet? And what about specific types of protein? Would that make a difference? It, it does, you know, make a difference. There's less research on that. But um, certainly, you know, meat protein is going to get more fermented um, than, say, you know, bean protein, because you got all the carbohydrates that come with it, and you're going to have to break it down. So it's going to, you know, go with the other markers. But generally, it's going to be just how much protein you eat. If you eat a lot of protein, you're going to get, um, you know, higher levels of these. Okay. But it also, if you eat, if two people eat the same amount of protein, but one gets a lot of fiber, it's going to kind of blunt that effect. Right. So, you know, if you just, if you just eat protein and you don't have any fiber in there, you know, long-term, you know, generally you're going to have decreased, you know, epithelial cell viability. It's associated with increased um, intestinal permeability, DNA damage, decreased uh, colonocyte proliferation. 
So if you're doing sort of a high protein, low carb diet, which is frequently, if it's not prescribed correctly. Right. Well, that's, see- I, you find that a lot. People who just start eating a bunch of meat. And, yeah. Yeah. So I think if you, if you don't follow it, if you're not assessing those things, um, if you're not getting any fiber to speak of, or you just, you know, you're eating a standard American diet and you decide to add more meat. That's, Do you think that you're going to be able to see um, more detail around, in terms of the sacrolytic markers, um, you know, around what foods might appropriately bump up? I mean, is there any um, butyric acid, for instance? I mean, do you think you'll be, you'll get that nuanced? So you see a a low butyric acid, um, but you can see the other sacrolytic, you can, I, mean, I don't know, is there any indication that you might, I mean, you're, you'll be able to define what's going on with protein and, you know, whether you're consuming too much protein or you're not taking, you're not ingesting it with enough fiber, or I think some of the compounds that you guys are looking at are probably um, potentially toxic, as you described, you know, damaging <laughs> Um, I mean, I don't know. I guess what yeah, I'm getting well, at is like I, how how detailed how detailed are these new metabolomic gut markers? Like how I mean, how granular can you get? Well, I think looking at you know P. Cresol, that's going to be from tyrosine, so you know you know where that's coming from, um, and it's you know it's implicated in kidney disease. It's been it's higher oh, in ASD ASD severity. It can even you know identify in some studies. Huh. So, um, but it, it actually, its excretions uh, was significantly decreased after, you know, wheat bran extract is 10 grams a day, which also increased the bifidobacteria. So it's not just getting protein and fiber. It's also what is your gut bacteria look like? Yeah. So those kind of things you can look at. And, and tryptophan is another one, you know, indoleacetic acid. Mm-hmm. And kind of look. So if these markers are high, and then you're, you know, going to look at other markers. So then I would look at those type of amino acid breakdown markers. Where are they? And then go and look at the dietary microbial metabolites. So the ones that that I, you know, think of looking at is like phytoestrogens. You know, those lignin derived phenolic derived, um, the elagitanins, choline carnitine, meta- carnitine metabolites. Those are all markers you can look at and kind of give you an idea. And because if, if you look at them in groups, it, it may help you identify what area you might need to, to work on a little more. Like right. if somebody's, you know, if you're going to give somebody some isoflavones or try to, you know, like an, look at those kind of changes, don't you want to see if they're an equal producer? Yeah, for sure. Okay. Okay. That's really cool. So um, this would be the person you're prescribing soy to. Um, Hopefully it's, you know, good quality organic, maybe fermented. And are they going to be able to activate it, you know, or flaxseed? I mean, are they actually going to be able to transform it in the gastrointestinal tract? to the compounds that we need those, those things to be transformed into. 
Yeah, don't, I mean, you, you're going to want to know those things. Yeah, for sure. We haven't been able to know those things. I mean, I think, and, and probably, you know, when we look at the pushback on soy in this country, I mean, I know sometimes, you know, it just has to do with the fact that some of our soy produced here is horrible quality and shouldn't be eaten. But <laughs> it's also probably you know, because we don't have the same gut microbiome as, 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 you know, folks in Asia who've been consuming soy, you know, for time immemorial, but this is pretty cool. So what you're saying is that there are, there are ways that we can look at the um, compounds produced by the microbiome and really see whether or not we're activating some of these tried and true nutrients. Right. Yeah. So look at equal, there's, um, there's also another one, and you talk about pronunciation. I can never pronounce it. It's eight uh, prenyl norigenin. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Origenin, I prefer yeah. to call, yeah, APN. Um, okay, yeah, call it APN. Never, never been good with the pronunciation. I don't pronounce, I, I don't pronounce well either, actually. Yeah. Okay. okay. Um, what about it? So that, you know, that also has been noted as a really good uh, phytoestrogen. Yeah, and interestingly enough, you know, it comes from hops, but people who had higher levels tended to drink less alcohol. <laughs> Interesting. So I, I, you would want to, you know, you'd want to check that. I mean, they have had, you know, standardized extracts have, have been pretty good in some research. It's alleviating menopausal symptoms. Um, so you would want to look where that is, you know. So in other words, you could predict whether they'll respond, your patient would respond to a hops-based um, intervention for menopause or a soy-based intervention. I mean, you might, or if you're using some of these for their other, you know, the anti-cancer, you know, the, the protective um, potential beyond just, you know, menopause, perimenopausal symptoms, you could, this these kind of metabolomic data would actually help there. Yeah. I mean, I think it would give you a picture that would give you direction. Yeah, certainly awesome. they have other, you know, I put them into these categories in my head of phytoestrogen, yeah. but there's so much overlap. There's so much overlap. Well, it's, I think it's, yeah, and it, 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 it's nice to actually have an understanding of that. Well, anything else that you want to add? Any other, any other, um, as we just kind of wrap up here, any other metabolites that are just really grabbing your attention in the literature these days? Well, <laughs> the, the urolithins. What, okay, talk about okay, those. Okay, so um, they come down for the, the, um, the elagitanins and elagic acid. So they get further broken down to urolithins, and there's A, B, and C. You just keep breaking huh. it down. But if somebody has a lot um, of the urolithins A, the urolithins um, A, it's been associated more with um, APOA and HDL. So it has more of an you know an anti-atherogenic impact. Huh. You know, it's also it has some good barrier function with AHR. Um, so that's one you'd want, um, as opposed to the B and the ISO A, those have been associated with um, increased risk of cardiovascular disease and dysbiosis, huh. and even poor response to statin therapy. Huh, that's pretty interesting. So, so that, oh, go ahead. 
So you could be eating good foods, walnuts, pecans, what else? What else is elijic acid in? Grapes, I guess. That's not so great. It's very sugary, but some other berries. So you could be eating a bunch of it and actually make a urolithin that's not good for you. Is that kind of what yeah. you're saying? Am yeah. I inferring that correctly? Yeah, there's the urolithin C, and that's going to be more in the small intestine. So if you don't end up metabolizing it, get to A or B. Wow. C. So what's extremely good for me may not be extremely good for me. Depending on my gut, mm -hmm. depending on who's living there. I mean, some right. really healthy foods. Like we're think, we think of elegiac acid as a, as a good guy for all of us. It's I, probably yeah, berries. Think, yeah, but it's really, what is your back, gut What's bacteria? your microbiome look like? Maybe there's bad guys living bad guys. Yeah, that's um, pretty interesting. There. I mean, there's also, you know, some other markers looking at like um, enterodiol, enterolactone, those lignin-derived ones from yeah. cereals, seeds, berries. And those ones, they're higher because it's so difficult to make those as breakdown products. It's really been uh, been used as a marker of just microbial diversity. So they're so good high. guys. You want they're good you want guys, right? And their their converge their conversion over is so dependent on all different activities and gut bacteria that just by having them high, it it kind of indicates that you've already got you know pretty good gut diversity. Fascinating. Wow. It never stops when. You <laughs> Hmm. Well, I, I think, yeah, yeah, no, it doesn't stop. Yeah, once you go into, once you go into PubMed <laughs> or Google Scholar or wherever you're going, but it's kind of, it's, I think it's exciting because it's just, it's that much more precision and we can just tell that much more about, you know, the optimal diet. Right. And it's really, it, it does, I probably just to hear people speak. <laughs> It, it, it sounds kind of confusing, but it's, you know, if it's laid out well, it won't be confusing and you can, you know, kind of figure out what products are the best or is it diet or do you need to move on and look at some gut activity, what's actually living in their gut. You know, so I, I think it's not, it's not as overwhelming as it sounds. Well, I think a lot of people are going to be pretty jazzed up about it. And yeah, I think as long as... I mean, I think it just, it, not everybody is going to be as geeked out as you are, Dr. Redmond, <laughs> but I mean, I think as long as we can kind of serve the omics, bring the omics revolution to busy clinicians in such a way that it's, um, it's applicable in a informed but straightforward way, I think it's, you know, it's where we're going. It's where we need to go. All right. Well, listen, again, folks, on the show notes, we will have loads of content for you. Um, the, the papers that Betsy referenced and any of her, um, you know, the papers that have really informed her thinking on these um, analytes, those will be on our show notes page. Um, and, you know, again, Dr. Redmond, it was just really nice to be able to chat with you today. And I'm just, I, I just, I love it. I love what, I love what you're thinking about right now. And I look forward to seeing where, where it goes. Thank you. Yeah, I love having somebody who gets excited. <laughs> right, right. 